Adrian Ugalde asks, would you guys buy a Mercury Optimax versus a Yamaha 150? Same year, same hours. First of all, Adrian, thank you for commenting and subscribing. And there is going to be a couple of different factors that I would ask you when it comes to the Optimax versus the Yamaha. So you say it's the same year, but are we talking about a four-stroke or a two-stroke? The Optimax is going to be a six-cylinder engine and the Yamaha is either going to be the six-cylinder two-stroke or the um, F-150. So if it's an F-150, then how are you going to be using the engine? That's going to matter a lot because the V6 Optimax is going to have a lot more power being a two-stroke, being the Optimax, and then being a six-cylinder over the four-stroke, four-cylinder inline Yamaha. Now, if you don't need that much power and you're talking about a boat that does not have a whole lot of weight and you don't want to go really, really fast, then that F-150 is going to be super reliable. It's super simple. It's easy to work on. And you're going to get tons and tons and tons of hours out of that engine. Whereas the Optimax is going to be reliable, but it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot harder to work on and it's a V6. It's not an inline four. So you're going to be able to get more speed. You're going to be able to get more power. If your boat is heavier and you want the speed, then I'm going to go with the Optimax. But if you want simplicity, reliability, um, I'm going to go with the F-150. And then if you want to throw in the two-stroke Yamaha 150, that is also a V6. I am probably going to go with the Yamaha V6 two-stroke over the Optimax as well, depending, again, if you want to use it. If you want power and speed, I'm going for the Optimax. If you want um, reliability and you want longevity and you don't want to go fast, then I'm going with the Yamaha. Now, not saying that the Optimax is not reliable, but for me, I don't really like the smaller horsepower Optimaxes, you know, the 135, the 150. It's, I'm not the biggest fan, even though it is a lot of power in a smaller package, but I just honestly like the 225, the 250. I like the larger Optimaxes compared to the smaller ones. For me, it comes down to simplicity. I think that in a lot of cases, simplicity is better. That's why a lot of people want to stick with a two-stroke over a four-stroke because of simplicity. There's less moving parts. There's less things to break. There's um, easier to diagnose, I guess you would say. And then whenever you start adding components like sensors and all these other frills like direct injection and air compressor and these other things onto the engine, it, it creates complications, which makes them harder to diagnose, harder for you to work on in your driveway. They're just more points for failure. So the simplicity of the Yamaha two-stroke 150 is there's something to say about that. And then the simplicity of the F-150 being a super reliable thousands and thousands of hours guaranteed and like just the longevity and simplicity of it. It just is a very simple engine. There's not a lot to it. They're easy to work on. They're easy to diagnose. So that's why I kind of go with the Yamaha over the Mercury because I think when you get lower horsepower, you don't need all these other things, all the frills and all the complications. You just need a plain Jane, simple engine that's going to get you out of the water and get you home and no, you know, 
you don't need all this power and all this complications. Whereas if you're talking about the 225 and the 250, it's more versatile because now we're trying to get speed. We're trying to get power. We're trying to, you know, we want, um, we want that performance out of the engine opposed to the just workhorse of an engine, which is what I would say a 150 is. The 150 is right there in that range where it's like this workhorse of an engine that you just want to, you know, bare minimum, put the thing in the water, run it and pull it out. And like, that's it. It's just a workhorse. It's not uh, this big complicated thing. So in this discussion, that's kind of where I'm leaning. If you if you got a real small boat and you want to put the 150 on there and go super fast, I'm going the Optimax. If you just want to, you know, if you need to move more weight and the V6 Yamaha is available, I'm going with that. And if it's not that much weight and you don't care about the speed and you just want super reliability, I'm going with the F-150. You didn't really tell me if you had the F-150 or the two-stroke 150, so I just threw that in there because I was not sure you know, exactly what you have there. I camper a few points. There is a temperature issue with lead acid batteries. The freezing point of the electrolyte solution is dependent on the state of charge at 100% state of charge. The freezing point is negative 70 degrees Celsius at 50% state of charge. The freezing point is negative 20 degrees Celsius and at 0% state of charge the freezing point is zero degrees celsius if your lead acid battery freezes the internal plates will get damaged and ruin the battery also there is significant differences between the different lithium chemical chemistries the life po4 batteries have a lower charge capacity but are far safer and very difficult to cause a thermal runaway with them the lithium ion chemistries found in many laptops cars etc have a higher charge capacity but are capable of thermal runaway and fires so yeah we're talking about lithium we've been talking about lithium a lot um i mean they're just pushing electric on us hard so it seems to be a massive talking point for everybody everywhere you go i did not know that the lead acid at 100 charge would get all the way down to negative 70 degrees celsius that's i mean super interesting for me and especially on a boat um i think that there's probably fewer people that have to worry about that as far as Getting to negative 70 degrees Celsius, that is super cold. I guess that's not super cold because negative 70 degrees Celsius is probably negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, you know, pretty much the same. But I did not realize that the freezing point goes down as the state of charge goes down. So the less it has charge in it, the easier it is going to be to freeze. And if it freezes at negative 20 degrees Celsius, that's like you know, five, 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's not that cold. Interesting. I didn't know that. I appreciate you letting us know all that. Slave Buster, I've been getting water in my lower unit for about three months. The lower water, the lower water pump base seal had a tear in it. So figured that was my problem. Replaced it new and the upper water pump will all new. Put new oil in it, run it for about six hours of fishing. Drain the oil when you when I got home, had a gray greenish look to it. I don't know any ideals. Got a bunch going on here, Slave. Um, we just did a video about this a few weeks ago uh, by the time this podcast comes out and talking about all the different places that a lower unit can take in water. Now, if you've got greenish, grayish water, so gray is not good. Gray is metal. That means that you are grinding something, and if you've got gray, that's, that's a problem. 
Now, as far as greenish, I'm guessing you put Merck gear lube in there, and that's why it's a greenish color. Um, if not, then, you know, that's a whole other topic right there, being the color of the gear lube. But for one, you do have a leak somewhere. And for two, you possibly have some metal on metal with the gray. The thing that you need to do is pressure test it because there's a whole bunch of different, there's, there's seven different ways that you can take on water to the lower unit. You've got your shift shaft seal. You've got your drive shaft seal. You've got your prop shaft seals. You've got drain plug, the vent plug, the O-ring on the bearing carrier for the prop shaft bearing carrier, and then the O-ring on the drive shaft bearing carrier. So you really need to pressure test it. Just finding a cut on the water pump base gasket is not really... The water pump base gasket is more for your water pressure and the amount of water that's going up to the engine. If you've got tears in the water pump housing O-ring or the water pump base gasket, these are things that like make sure that the water in your water pump is being forced up and not able to leak out You know, back down into the water, into the lower unit, anywhere else. Um, it does not really have anything to do with water getting inside of the gear case. So you're going to need to drain the lower unit and then put your drain plug in and put a pressure tester on there, pump it up to like 10, 12 PSI, and then take a water bottle or I mean a squirt bottle of degreaser, soapy water, anything like that, spray it around again, shift shaft, drive shaft, prop shaft, and turn the shafts as you are spraying them with that pressure in the gear case. And you should start to see air bubbles coming out from one of those locations. If you do not see any air bubbles, then most likely the O-ring down around the prop shaft bearing carrier is what's leaking, but you're going to have to pressure test it. There's no way to get around it. You've got to do a pressure test in order to figure out where that Gear lube is getting out and water is getting in. Hope that helps. Pressure tester, um, you know, any kind of a pump that's going to create pressure, you only need 10 PSI, 12 PSI. So I would suggest getting one from Amazon or from Harbor Freight somewhere cheap. If you need to pressure test a gear case a lot, I would go with the Stevens, but the Stevens are like 180 bucks. So there is that. AI the PAL or Al the PAL. I'm guessing Al the PAL. Sea Ray 1998 180 Bowrider is my first boat. Had it under a year. Every time I fix something, something else breaks. Well, um, Al the PAL, that is unfortunate. And that is kind of with some boats, that is exactly how it goes, especially a 1998. Um, you're talking about a 26 year old boat. So now's the time when things start to go bad. It is unfortunate, but I do think that for the most part, as soon as you start getting into something like that, eventually you get to the end where you've got a lot of stuff fixed and you don't have as many problems. So hopefully that light at the end of the tunnel is coming soon. I'm not sure what exactly all you got going on with the boat, but yeah, sometimes with a boat, that is exactly how it feels. It feels like, you know, you fix this part over here, you take the boat out and now the depth finder doesn't work. And then the VHF stops and then your speakers blow and now your engine's broken and then you got water in the lower unit. And now all of a sudden the trim tab stopped working. So, I mean, sometimes it feels like a snowball effect, especially when you get something that's like 26 years old that begins to all these problems start to come to a head and 
just stick with it. Hopefully, you know, you get things figured out and it all kind of, you know, you'll learn a lot about the boat and then you're going to figure out whether you like that boat and you want to get into a different boat or not. Hopefully it doesn't um, deter you and that you just want to stop boating altogether because that is not what anybody wants. Gary Rad TKE, I'm guessing. Gary Rad TKE. We all know how well owners don't take care of their boats and always seem to find some sort of workaround to circumvent correct repairs and maintenance. And now people want a pressurized container of hydrogen that weighs about maybe a hundred times more than gasoline systems that are very that are have that systems that are have a much more potential for being bombs than gasoline ever did yeah gary i'm with you dude i mean that's the problem with a boat is a boat is not like your car your car you use it every day you're going through a tank of gas every like month or so so it's always getting fresh fuel everything's always moving things are always staying lubed and greased and like it's not taking the wear of you go out and use it once, bring it home, park it on the side of your house, and there it sits for four months, and then you just pull it out and get it out and try to do the same thing. You don't. We, that's just how it goes. People put off maintenance and everything else, and so we treat them terribly. And, yeah, I'm with you, dude. I mean, I think hydrogen, the technology is not there. I mean, it would be interesting if it ever got somewhere, but if not, I mean, yeah, you're going to try and convert the thousands of marinas that are out there that have fuel and diesel and now you're trying to add hydrogen and electric which is charging and all kinds of other things it is definitely definitely a tall order and sounds like a problem to me too maverick another good video love the content thank you maverick i work on boats frequently and i was wondering if i could run an engine on a stand or a boat with the batteries removed by hooking up my jump pack directly to the battery cables of the engine makes it easy because you don't need to haul a heavy battery around my question is will the jump pack mess up the ecu or other electronics in the engine because of its high amperage or is it safe for the engine honestly maverick no i'm not I'm saying no, don't do that. In theory, yeah, but you kind of need to have a battery in the system. Because of the way the charging works and because of the way the ECU works. Um, so like as soon as you turn the key on, like I'm trying to think of a good way to put this. Like if you take the battery out and try and hook straight to the cables with a jump pack, your jump pack is not designed to accept charge voltage. It is basically there to disperse power and then you charge it by plugging it in and it has like a built-in charger that charges it so it's not like a direct battery that's you know readily readily available to produce power and then consume power or like receive power i guess you would say so whenever you turn your key on the engine is going to start consuming power. You've got, you've got like, you know, certain amperages that are, the ECU is going to burn like one, 1.5 amps. The fuel pump's going to take another amp. You know, you're, as soon as you get it started, your injectors are going to be consuming amperage. Ignition coils are consuming amperage. So like you're consuming a stagnant, like, you know, I don't know, six to 10 amps of power based on the engine. And what kind of, you know, consume consuming power it consumes. So that engine needs all that power to be consumed. But at the same time, it's going to be charging. So it's going to be sending amperage out straight back to the battery. And the jump pack is not designed for that. You're going to probably have problems. Um, you could mess up the ECU, I think, like just because it like you would, you would get it running and it might disconnect from the engine. So like you get the engine to run 
but now all of a sudden, like the problem between the jump pack and the engine, it might just straight up disconnect from the engine. The jump pack might turn off. And then when your engine's running like that and you just shut it off, you're killing the power. And an ECU is a computer. So, you know, just pulling power away from a computer is not good. You can fry it. You can mess up the software inside it. You can, you can short it out. You can have voltage spikes. You can have all kinds of problems that could happen to that. And, you know, not saying that that's going to happen like right off the bat. It's just that it could happen. And if you're working on someone else's stuff, you don't take risks like that because um, it's not yours. And even if it is yours, you don't take risks like that anyway because, you know, grabbing a 24 group 24 they're not that heavy and a group 24 is going to start most engines especially if you're just trying to do testings like trim it up start it whatever um now if you put the jump pack onto the battery and start it you should have enough power there to get the engine running and then with the engine running the charge power from the engine going back to the battery is going to keep the battery like enough power to allow the engine to also consume power. So it's like consuming its own power, basically. But you have to have that battery in the system. It can't be a jump pack just because it's not designed like that. It's just kind of like the same problem that you got with lithiums and a cheap BMS that will disconnect from the engine while the engine's running, and you could break the ECU, meaning that it, it basically glitches the software and the software just like fries it to where now if you try and reflash it, it will not accept anything because it's just it, the firmware and the software is just, it's just fried. So I wouldn't do that. Just kind of the reasons why I wouldn't do that. Eric Davey, the Yamaha 4.2 liter 300 is the Toyota Corolla of outboards. Don't mess with it. Enjoy it. hundred percent, Eric. I love it. 4.2 bulletproof engine i mean yamaha just makes such a good product i know i say that a lot and i'm i'm really not a yamaha kool-aid drinker either but um they do you just can't i mean the 4.2 is is an outstanding engine and now we got a 4.3 350 so it's interesting i think that that thing's going to do really really well as well hunt m that's cool you used to live in destin where i live my whole life love the podcast what is your best tip for getting looks like to be mold out of a fuel tank i got a 2021 blue wave 2200 pure bay with look like tiny mold chunks every time i change my raycor fuel filter dealer says we might have to have it polished been a problem since i bought the boat 315 hours on it now and starting to have VST problems. It does not sound like the dealer is going to cover any of it, unfortunately. Also, what do you think caused it? I run nothing but non-ethanol. Boat did sit at the dealer for a long time before I got it. I can't really say anything, you know, about the dealer. I don't know the situation. I don't know what's going on, but um, there's only really two ways for something to get into the fuel tank. And that's either, you know, well, actually there's three ways. So especially with a new boat. So one, you got a leak somewhere and a hole in the tank or something, a hose or something that's allowing stuff to get in Two, there was stuff in the tank from the factory or three, um, you got a bad, a bad batch of gas, which means when you filled up somewhere, that gas had a bunch of stuff in it and it filled the tank. And now you're just constantly sucking it up. It is very possible that the stuff was in the tank from the factory. Like, um, you know, you think about how a bolt 
is built like it's built in a big giant warehouse where they're grinding fiberglass they're putting stuff together they're popping molds they're installing engines they've got stacks of things so like you know they're putting a boat together and they may make you know 30 40 50 boats in a year and so they're gonna have 30 40 50 fuel tanks sitting there uh, same thing for the engines, the rigging, and all that stuff. They have this stuff, you know, in quantity because they're making X amount of boats in X amount of time. And usually these tanks have plugs on them. All the holes are covered up. There's no way for stuff to get in there. But at the same time, mistakes happen. Things happen. A lot of moving parts, a lot of people involved. And so let's say one of the covers on the fuel tank was not there and it was next to where they were grinding fiberglass. All this fiberglass dust is now inside that tank because that one cap was off. Now, is that enough or is it possible enough for there to be that much stuff in there to cause this much of a problem? Possibly. Um, and it's also again, very highly possible that you got a bad batch of gas. It's hard to say now, as far as al, I mean, if, it, if it's algae, usually on gasoline, we don't see algae buildup. You see algae when, um, like that would look like mold. I'm saying algae, it would look like mold because it's, it's algae, but that's a diesel problem. That's, um, something not necessarily that you see in gasoline, unless you get a bad batch of gasoline that has you know, some sort of chemical in it that created this issue. Having a leak in the tank for stuff to get in there, probably not as likely. But, um, yeah, I'm surprised that the dealership isn't willing to, you know, kind of work on it. I guess it's a 2021, so it's a three-year-old boat by now. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit unfortunate. Who knows how long it sat. You know, I don't know all the details here, but I'm just trying to talk through the probable causes. Now... As far as polishing the tank, 100%. That should have been done after the second time that you had the problem. Um, or the tank should have been ran all the way dry and then, you know, um, inspected somehow. Take the cinder out and look down in there, see what's going on. But, yeah, polishing the fuel is super common. That's what most of the places do is you have a company that come out, take the cinder out, take the fill off, and they hook it up to a, a system that then pumps the fuel out, cleans it, polishes it, and then pumps it back in. It's like a cycle that they go through. Um, so, and then there's other different problem like places that will even take all the fuel out and then run a polishing compound through the tank to completely polish everything in the tank. But, um, yeah, running that running that tank empty, and that's another thing. You know, how many three hundred fifteen hours on it now? So you had to have at least burned through, you know, a few tanks of gas. So there might be something else that's going on that's like allowing stuff to be constantly getting into the tank. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It's made it all the way to the VST, and now you got VST problems. That's a lot of. A lot of bad events all in one thing. So I would definitely polish the fuel, but at the same time, I don't know if polishing the fuel is really going to fix it. Seeing that you got 315 hours. So if you've had this problem where, again, if it was there in the fuel tank from the factory and um, you've got 315 hours on it, so you've probably burned maybe three, four Five, I, I, you know, I don't know how many hours you can go without a, on a fill up. So at least a few full tanks worth of fuel. 
So you should have already gotten most of that stuff out of there because the pickups on the bottom. Also, that's something else to think about if the stuff is like floating or sinking. So like stuff that's floating on the top, which most stuff, particles and stuff will float on top of the fuel um, until you get the fuel level down to where the pickup it gets down to here to where the pickup can pick the stuff up. It sounds like there's something that's in the fuel for it to just constantly be pulling that stuff up. Hard to say. So that's definitely hard to say without being able to look at stuff and take stuff apart and physically look at stuff. Mudabura, I can give you the facts. All 4.2 Yamahas are the exact same engine, same compression, injectors, cams. They are all identical. I think there's a total of 13 models. Yamaha uses the electric electronic throttle to limit horsepower. The reason the 300 horsepower requires high octane is it runs more aggressive timing in the top end. You can get a Niz Pro Marine tune to make 332 horsepower out of any 4.2 liter Yamaha. The reason I know all this is I done, I've done extensive research into it and have spoken at length to Niz Pro and have tuned mine from 250 to 332. Huge difference and very happy not associated with Niz Pro. Talking about Niz Pro, talking about tuning, talking about, you know, getting more horsepower out of the engines. 4.2 liter block, same engine, like you said, it's all the same, same throttle body, same injectors, everything's the same. So, had a 250, 4.2, and tuned it up to 332. So, you're probably you're not going to see any problems any complications with that because a lot of it is in the tuning and again the 4.2 comes standard as a 300 from yamaha so um if they're using it all the way up to 300 then squeezing 32 horsepower ain't ain't a big deal out of it but that's going to be a massive performance difference between a 250 and a 332. So I'm glad you are happy. Gramsci, I've had more issues with my newer four-stroke than I do with my two-stroke. Carbs is really the only issue I've ever had. So, yeah, I love the statement. Well, like we were talking about earlier about um, the simplicity factors of things and a two-stroke being way more simple than a four-stroke. A four-stroke has a lot more going on, which means there's a lot more you know, components that could fail. Um, I don't know about saying too many. I mean, I guess in his personal experience, he's had a lot more issues with his four strokes than his two strokes. But, um, you know, depending on the engine, most of the new four strokes, you shouldn't have all that much trouble out of them. Kind of say that with an asterisk, I guess you would say, because a lot of the engines do have a lot of problems. But, um same thing with the two strokes. I would say the the main factor of a two stroke is it's simpler. There's less moving parts. They're easier to maintain. And as long as you keep them oiled, like and run them, like good gas and maintenance, like most two strokes are pretty bulletproof when it comes to that aspect. Whereas the four stroke, yeah, you got a lot more filters. You got you know oil sumps, oil pumps. You got all the injectors. You got all the all the sensors that you know, maintain it, all the mapping done by the computer, 100% way more complicated compared to a carbureted two-stroke engine that only has a carburetor and an oiling system with a mechanical throttle body that just opens the throttle and closes the throttle. One simple, you know, computer that changes the timing based off a mechanical timer base. So, Way simpler. Mike Solnes, my 1990s Yamaha V6 225 came used with my used boat. How to know how reliable they are when you get them used? So that's a good question. Whenever you are looking at a used engine, 
there are some basic things that you want to look at. I mean, first of all, you want to do a visual inspection of the engine. Just straight up take the cowling off, look at everything. You know, do you see a lot of rust? Do you see a lot of salt buildup? Is it completely dirty? A lot of black belt dust, stuff like that. Is there, um, does it look like any of the grease fittings have been greased recently? Is there a bunch of old dry grease around things? Cables and like throttle plates, stuff like that. Does it look dry and old and rusty? Or does it look lubed up and um, like it's, you know, been used recently? The more things that are, you know, less likely, like the, all those things are basically negative things. So you're making sure that it doesn't have a lot of those things. And if it doesn't have a lot of those things and it looks really clean, that's your first good sign. Second thing, you need to do a compression test. I'd even probably throw in a spark test there to make sure that all of the ignition coils are firing and that you have good compression on the engine. How many hours are on the engine is also going to play a factor because, you know, based on the visual inspection and based on the hours, you can make an assumption of how well the engine was maintained. If it looks spotless and it looks really clean and the thing's got 2,000 hours on it, that then it's going to be like, oh, well, it was probably properly maintained because an unmaintained engine with 2,000 hours on it is going to be relatively filthy compared to one that was well-maintained with you know corrosion blocker and stuff like that on it. Lower unit, need to look at the gear lube that's in the lower unit to make sure there's no water or anything like that. Make sure the gear lube, generally what you want to see is dirty gear lube. If you buy a used engine and it is brand new gear lube, that does not tell you anything. By and large, usually if it is brand new, you're going to want to put the um, drain plug back in it just in case and you are going to want to pressure test it. So if if it if it holds pressure, you don't want to waste all that brand new gear lube. And if it doesn't hold pressure, you can drain it and you're going to waste it anyway. But main thing is if it looks good, you don't want to waste the gear lube. So I would pressure test it to see if it leaks. If it leaks, then you know it was probably dirty and water and milky gear lube. It just got changed before you got to it. So generally you want to see dirty, older gear lube because that lets you know that, um, you know, it's not leaking and you have less problems. Whereas the new lube, it's kind of covered it up. You you can't see if there was, you know, water intrusion previously or if you have a water leak in the lower unit, like from the start, you know what I'm saying? Like this is now you owning that engine. And if you don't know that you have a leak in the lower unit, you might go use it for a hundred hours, but hundred hours with a leaky lower unit, how much is it leaking? If it fills up with water in 10 hours and you try and put 90 more on it, you could blow up the lower unit. So checking that lower unit, making sure that there is no leaks, big thing. And then also looking over your, um, the trim system and everything else, making sure everything looks like it's been greased, looks like it's been oiled. Outside of that, there is not a ton of things that you can really do to determine reliability out of an engine because, you know, basically all those tests and all that stuff is going to tell you the current state that the engine is in. But there's no way to be like, you know, to see you know, what the bearings look like, what the internal block looks like, what the past has done with the engine. Like, you you know, you can't see all that stuff. You can just basically go off of this is the current state of the engine and based on the cleanliness, the hours, and all the other things that we just talked about, that's going to give you a good idea of whether or not it is going to be reliable for you or not. So 
Those are all the things that I can think of off the top of my head. Dustin says my Chrysler 1500 horsepower two-stroke has 17 million hours and still has the original plugs, points, and condensers. The lower unit oil has never been replaced. In fact, the boat still has the original Sears battery from 1974. What is this? Even the trailer has the original bias ply tires that have been trailered from Canada to Key West every summer since 1932. <laughs> Take that, you fuel-injected four-stroke lovers. Oh, man. That's funny that got put in there. That's hilarious. Obviously, that's a spoof because, um, yeah, that's, that's too funny, dude. Thank you, Dustin. That was... <laughs> that's hilarious a 1500 horsepower two-stroke with 17 million hours <laughs> and the the original sears battery from 1974 that's too funny too funny all right let's do let's do one more and then we'll end it for this week uh dustin that's hilarious brett belk i guess 96 200 horsepower ocean pro I run 40 miles out into the golf on a single. Am I nuts? What's your thoughts on them? Um, dude, Brett, I ran a 250 Ocean Pro for three years, like three to four times a week. No problems. Those Ocean Pros are like, they're a super solid engine. Couple things um, for me on my Ocean Pro, I pre-mixed it. I didn't worry about the oiling system. I pre-mixed it um, and ran good, clean fuel. And change the spark plugs often. So that's that's basically it. As long as you run them regular and you you know maintain them regular and you you keep good oil to it with good clean gas, dude, those engines are bulletproof. I mean, I'm not gonna say bulletproof, but they are they are reliable. I mean, I ran that thing everywhere, no problems. I did so I actually would double like not double, but I would over oil my mix. It smoked a lot more. And I fouled more plugs, but at the same time, um, the, the main problem that the ocean pros ever had, well, there's like, there's a couple things, but mainly they've got those plastic carburetors. So the carburetors would get hot, they would melt, they would warp. And so ethanol would do that and lack of oil would do that. So pre-mixing good quality, non-ethanol fuel, they, I had no problems out of those carbs. Another thing that was infamous on those is if they got hot there was like a resin on the timer base that would melt and then it would mess up um your timing but other than that i you know super solid engine um i had no problems out of my 250 and i want to say that's the same I, i'm not 100 but i want to say the 200 225 250 was all basically the same engine um but yeah i wouldn't say that you're crazy I would say that as long as you're using it regularly and maintaining it, good quality fuel, solid engine. So thank you, everybody, for all your comments. That's going to be it for this week. If you want to talk about something, drop in the comments. Email askbab at bornagainboating.com. Check out our boaters program at bornagainboating.com. It helps fund this whole operation. And uh, we will see you guys next week.